Happy Friday and welcome to Rising. We're so excited to be guest hosting. We ran Robbie and Bree out of town. But Inez, <laughs> I wanted to hear how it was on the train coming in from New York City. Did you survive the rat czar or did the rats get to you? <laughs> Uh, I, I, we were talking about this before we started, but I think DC needs a cockroach czar, and obviously New York has the rat czar. The train was lovely, um, nice morning light. I'm, I'm ready to get to today's we, show. So I think DC needs a mini rat czar. I don't know, a rat prince or something, because <laughs> there are some rats here. You know, they're they're not quite as you stated of the size of a New York rat but they are present. We, we definitely have those rodents of unusual size. There's a, a reference for the older older millennial <laughs> crowd up in New York. So what else is going on in the world besides rats in New York City? The Pentagon leaker has been identified and arrested. 21-year-old National Air Guardsman Jack Teixeira will face a Massachusetts court today for sharing secret U.S. intelligence on the social app, Discord, primarily used among gamers. He's expected to face charges for violating the Espionage Act, according to the Times. The suspect's gaming friends say the classified documents were shared to show them what war really is. Here's what Attorney General Merrick Garland had to say on the matter. Today, the Justice Department arrested Jack Douglas Teixeira in connection with an investigation into alleged unauthorized removal, retention, and transmission of classified national defense information. Teixeira is an employee of the United States Air Force National Guard. FBI agents took Teixeira into custody earlier this afternoon without incident. The breach in intel has sparked concerns over how a lower-level guardsman had access to sensitive material and the fact that the documents were out there for weeks. U.S. Intelligence agencies may actually change how they monitor social media and chat rooms, according to NBC News. Journalist Glenn Greenwald had this to say about that report. Corporate journalists went to the Pentagon today to angrily demand they find ways to clamp down on secrets and ensure that no more leaks can happen. One specifically demanded they monitor Discord. Congrats to the journalists for getting less transparency and more monitoring. Inez, what do you make of all this? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm definitely concerned with the way that uh, intelligence agencies and spokespeople have, and there was that report also out of NBC News, that we are going to see a change in how intelligence agencies monitor, right, private chats on the internet, right? I don't think that that could be good news for civil liberties whatsoever. Right now, you need probable cause in order to, um, you know, to, to uh, basically check in on our group chats, right? You, you can't yeah. uh, do that without actually having a probable cause. They can't spy on Americans without having that probable cause. Um, and so that that really worries me, that whole idea that we might have intelligence agencies pawing through all of the private chats on the internet, allegedly looking for leaked documents, but also just reading what Americans are saying to each other. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's kind of terrifying. Any kind of uh, Big Brother-style uh, surveillance on Americans is, is scary. However, I, I will say that there are people who would argue, for example, Peyton Gendron, uh, Gendron sorry, sorry, uh, who shared on Discord that he was planning to target and kill uh, black people, and then he went and actually did it in Buffalo by killing 10 people inside of that uh, supermarket. And he shared that on Discord. And, and so the question is, how do we come to a place where we can actually catch people who are going to do the nation harm? 
versus monitoring, you know, wholesale all Americans. Is there a, a, a happy medium where we can stop like terror activity, like what Gendron did, and still, you know, respect civil liberties? Well, right now, that, that uh, distinction is the public-private, right? Obviously, social media, I mean, public posts on social media, they're in the public. They're, we know that there are both private and government, um, you know, people monitoring all of that stuff. Um, and, and again, if you have a probable cause, right. um, if you have some concrete you know, uh, reason to believe that, uh, for example, there are leaked national security documents in a Discord chat, um, I think that most Americans would reasonably say, okay, like, we know that this is not good, that we have you know, mass leaks out of the Pentagon, despite the fact that this is just showing the American people the truth of what our government is actually doing and thinking about very important foreign policy matters. Um, but, but in any case, there, there is the question here, how did this 21-year-old guardsman get a hold of this? And so far, the reporting as of this morning is that these documents were in a quote-unquote secure facility but right. that he was able to walk in and out of there and just take the documents, fold them up, and put them in his pocket. So, so, so that implicates right. their security. I don't. For I'm sure. not really happy about losing my right to chat privately with my friends because they can't better secure national security documents. No, I, I agree. Yeah. There, there's definitely a hole there that needs to be filled. Um, apparently, he was trained. Uh, he had several certifications. It, it, we're not really certain from what I've seen not really certain whether it was in his capacity as a guardsman that he had access to the documents or whether he, you know, because he works in IT, much like Edward Snowden and others, that he was able to gain access through that. And he had these certifications that, you know, made him qualified to actually, you know, be around these documents. That's not really clear. I, I think that there is, uh, you know, on the one end, when it comes to Teixeira, I have some feelings of sympathy for him. And part of that is because you see this young kid who's gotten himself into something that he is completely not prepared for. He is going to be, you know, we saw what happened with uh, Chelsea Manning getting 35 years. She only served seven, but she still served a lot of time in prison. Reality winner, uh, Edward Snowden, Julian Assange. Um, but I do think that there are some key differences here um, between those cases and the case of Teixeira. Julian Assange, I would argue, was working in the capacity of a journalist. And then you had Edward Snowden and these other people, which I have mixed feelings about some of them, but who did this, they could certainly argue they, they were doing this for the public good. They were trying to make the public aware of what was going on. This kid was sharing it on Discord with his buddies. You know, so it, it, you can't argue that he was doing this, you know, for the public good so that the public had knowledge. He wasn't sending this to WikiLeaks or to The Intercept or to Glenn Greenwald. He was literally like, hey, guys, take a look at this. And it was a bunch of teenagers on Discord. And, I, you know, I think that doesn't bode well for him, at least in, in, in my opinion. So I have kind of these mixed feelings about, you know, he was sharing it, his, his group he called Thug Shaker Central, like that was the name of it, <laughs> you know? So I have these kind of mixed feelings about this because if, if you're sharing it because you're like, whoa, Americans need to know this, um, and you're, you know, I think you qualify as a whistleblower, and I think Ju Julian Assange qualifies as a journalist, um, and he has certain protections because of that. He should be afforded those. I'm not but sure this his is a motivation— I'm not really concerned about his motivation, except uh, in the case, like, 
if, if you are acting on behalf of, of a hostile foreign nation, that puts it into a different right. category, right? But the fact that this guy's motivations, at least according to his gaming buddies, were uh, more or less, you know, to, to buy cloud on his Discord chat. He's like, yeah, look, guys, I'm really, you know, and, and also apparently to show what, what a war really looks like behind the scenes. He was trying to show them that. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, so, I, I'm not sure his motivations matter so much. Um, I do think that there, these leaks are substantively different in that actually what is contained in them so far, and there's still, you know, reporting coming out, um, and, and really legacy media outlets have been extremely um, slow to actually report on the very, very important substance in these leaks, right? Um, and, and really have, have sort of done more reporting on catching the leaker. They were out in front of the FBI and catching the leaker, right, um, than, than they were interested in the so, substance of what this is. But I, I, I really, um, there's no, no uh, even claim from intelligence services from, from Joe Biden in his, in his statements, um, that, for example, the identities of American assets are compromised or anything direct like that. What is at stake are relationships with other intelligence services and, and, and allies and foes and the embarrassment so, of the government. I think you're, and I you're, don't think that that's the same kind of leak. Right. I, I think that that actually is information that Americans, um, you know, have I, some claim to have so a right I, to know. I think you're, you're addressing a lot of this, but I do want to know, like, how do you think that this compares to, to Ed Snowden? Like, how, how, do you, how do you compare that? If, if you're saying that um, the motivation doesn't matter um, and because he wasn't sharing it with a hostile nation, how would you compare it to, to Edward Snowden? No, I mean, I think if you have a motivation where you are working, and I'm not actually saying this about Edward Snowden, but just generally, if you are actively spying for a foreign country um, and, and releasing information on behalf of a foreign country, that's one category of these kinds of leaks. I think Snowden is somewhere in the middle where it gets picked up and used um, by, and, and there's communication to some extent, uh, but with, with uh, foreign powers. This is, as you said, this is a kid leaking into a chat I, I think actually this implicates more the, the stuff that I said originally about you know, who, how many people have access to these top security documents? What are the procedures? And it's funny because the, we know the federal government overclassifies everything, but this stuff is stuff that should have legitimately, is, has, should have had a very high security clearance, and yet right. apparently it's very easy to walk into one of these facilities, pick it up, fold it, and put it in your pocket. You know, I, I think that's probably, to the extent that we should be talking about the leaker at all, as opposed to the information that's actually in this leak, um, I, I think it's, it's that... So it's more incompetent, clearly, because a, this shouldn't have happened. A lot of what's come out is, from what I've seen, again, and I'm sure they're, they're not sharing everything in the media, but um, a lot of it seems like it was largely known already. Like, you know, Ukraine needs more weapons, you know, fighting, they're fighting to a stalemate, and this could last at least the rest of the year. I think a lot of that was already known. I think the other thing that we have to remember about the leaker himself is the fact that uh, he knew the consequences. He he was trained, and had had the you know the background to understand that this was a serious issue. At the same time, again, I have some kind of sympathy or empathy with him because he's 21 years old, and I, I think he was trying to impress his friends and say, hey, I have access to these kinds of documents. He wasn't, you know, trying to influence anything in the world other than making his friends be like, wow, this guy's big time. Um, but all right, we'll keep you all updated on this and all that develops more rising after this.
After a five-week absence, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell confirmed he will be returning back to work next week on Thursday. He tweeted, I'm looking forward to returning to the Senate on Monday. We've got important business to tackle and big fights to win for Kentuckians and for the American people. McConnell suffered a concussion after falling at a dinner for the Senate Leadership Fund on, in March 8th. Before saying he intends to return for sure, his fellow Republican colleagues in the Senate uh, started making preparations in case a longtime GOP leader in the Senate retires. According to The Spectator, Senators John Barrasso, John Cornyn, and John Thune, three Johns, um, have, have been making the rounds, among other senators, in anticipation of McConnell's departure. The magazine also reported that Cornyn has been courting some senators, uh, even those whom he has not been close to. Top GOP spot in the upper chamber, um, after 16 senators voted to delay the leadership. Should he retire, this group of holdouts could be key in selecting McConnell's replacement. So, what do, what do you think about this? <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm glad that McConnell's able to, to make it back. I know that that was a serious injury that he suffered. Um, I think that, you know, of course, there's always somebody who's looking for leadership. We saw a Florida man try to get it last time. Uh, didn't work out so well. And, you know, many people believe that the underperformance in the midterms for Republicans was due to, to, to uh, what he was doing. And I think um, that McConnell in, uh, you know, he, he is a very effective politician. And I think it, it's going to be a loss if Republicans lose him, as much as I don't, you know, he's not my guy, I think that, you know, it will be a, a serious loss. What he did in, you know, or, or with uh, Merrick Garland, keeping him off the Supreme Court was wickedly masterful. You know, it was masterful politics. Um, and I think he's, he's a, a valuable asset for the Republican Party in the Senate. Yeah, I think most Republicans don't agree, though. Um, yeah. So, I, I mean, I Mitch McConnell is, is, is very, uh, very unpopular in his own party. There's a reason that there's been a bunch of runs at his seat. Now, as you say, he is a masterful politician. That he is, I will definitely grant him. He's very good at keeping his own power and, and in, the, in the Senate. Um, but I think there's a reason that there have been these, these challenges, these whispers now, um, you know, anticipation of him retiring. Uh, he, he really has— um, stymied a lot of the populist energy in the Republican Party. He has sort of superficially worked with Donald Trump, but then um, really worked against his agenda in a lot of ways. The, the relationship between them is, is not very good. Um, and this goes back way before Trump, honestly, because I know we like to talk about Trump and it's always a fun subject. <laughs> but, um, you know, McConnell was unpopular during the Tea Party days as well. There's this longstanding, um, you know, understanding among the GOP base that McConnell is not really their guy, that he's there um, to essentially to cut taxes and, and maybe to uh, fund a war effort. And that's basically the only two priorities that he has. Meanwhile, the Republican Party and, and Republican-based voters feel like they have been put on their heels both economically and culturally for decades. So I think there is the real sense that uh, McConnell is, is holding the party back um, despite his, his sort of um, his wins within the Senate. Because I agree with your characterization yeah. that when he wants to do something, 
in yeah. Washington. He can get he's it done. The problem old is politician. what he wants to do is not what the GOP base <laughs> wants from him. Yeah, no, he's, he, like I said, he's a wily old politician. You know, he, he knows how to pull the levers of government. He knows how to stall things even when he's in the minority. He knows uh, how, to, how to deal with uh, presidents of the other party and, and how to stymie whatever it is that they're trying to do. Um, I would say I understand what you're saying, and he certainly did not have a good relationship with Donald Trump because Donald Trump expects, you know, obsequious behavior and fealty, and I don't think that Mitch McConnell gave him 100 percent of that the way people like, you know, Lindsey Graham and others in, in uh, the Republican Party and particularly in the Senate have. So I, I understand that there's some tension there. As far as your your characterization of him in terms of culture, I would agree, but I don't know that that's what Senate leadership is for. And that's not really—I'm not looking for uh, someone like Chuck Schumer to be, a, you know, a, a cultural leader, you know? I'm expecting him to uh, do some savvy politicking the way he did with the, influx, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act and, and some of the things that he was able to do, even though I disagree with him on a multitude of things, I'm looking for that kind of uh, maneuvering. And I would say that, you know, in, in recent times, except for maybe Nancy Pelosi, there's never been anybody who's really maneuvered uh, to get what it is that Republicans say that they want better than Mitch McConnell in the Senate. Um, now, again, maybe John Thune or one of the other Johns, Cornyn, uh, will be all able <laughs> all the Johns. Um, we know that Florida man who said that he wants to sunset uh, Social Security and, all, and Medicare, like, he's not going to be—he's not the guy. To be fair, he wanted to sunset everything. Yeah. Was, was, he didn't <laughs> specify he wanted all of the laws to sunset. Um, right. But—, but yeah, that, that's... But, but I, I really disagree with this idea that the point of Senate leadership is somehow not to deal with cultural issues or not to deal. The point of Senate leadership and the whole point of having political parties and officers who we vote for, right? Mm -hmm. We vote for elected officials, um, is to enact the policies allegedly. And yeah, now I policies. know that's not that's not what what actually happens, but that is the point of Senate leadership and everything else. Uh, our elections, right? Yeah, um, we agree. And and so I really don't think the base feels that McConnell has uh, you know advanced their priorities in the. Senate. Um, and I think there's probably the correct perception that he's a guy who, first and foremost, cares about maintaining his own power in Washington. And sadly, I think that's correct. I, and, um, you know, also, he, he ran in the—you mentioned the midterms, right? He ran in the midterms. He told Senate Republicans, no agenda, right? Don't run on anything. Just say Democrats are bad. Well, that didn't work out, did it? So, like, I, I, I really—I um, think there is a deep and abiding— uh, mistrust of McConnell in the base, and I think there's going to be quite a scramble. Now, whether whoever succeeds him is actually going to listen to the average GOP voter any more than McConnell did, that is a, by far an open question. Um, but there's one more thing I wanted to get your yeah. thoughts on. Sure. Like, we have, we have Dianne Feinstein, who's out of office, right? We have, you mentioned Nancy Pelosi, she's getting up there, too. Um, we have Mitch McConnell. She's out of who has, yeah. She's, so she is retiring um, from leadership. But, but, you know, we have McConnell, who's also pushing 80, I believe, right? Mm -hmm. um, I, not to say that, of course, we, I hope and we hope, we hope that, you know, McConnell <laughs> is okay, that he recovers well from his concussion. But are we run by a gerontocracy? <laughs> um, so I, I, I don't want to sound ageist. I do think that there is something to be said for experience. And we certainly have quite a bit of experience 
uh, when you're looking at guys like Chuck Grassley, who says he's going to run again. I think he's, he'll he even be, mentioned Joe Biden and Trump to yeah. guys who are actually silent. I believe they're both silent generation on the tail end of the side. They're not even boomers. Right. No, to <laughs> totally. Um, and, you know, Florida man is, is, is Rick Scott, just in case anybody's yeah, wondering yeah. who I was referring to. But um, first of all, I, I, I don't think that we are run by gerontocracy because we, we do have some young uh, politicians who are rising. Number one, you know, Maxwell Frost. Uh, who has kind of captured the imagination of many in the party. He's, you know, in his 20s. Uh, of course, you know, AOC is still, you know, I think, is she 30 yet? I'm not even sure. Uh, you know, that, that entire, the entire squad are young people. Um, and they realize that in order to get young people's votes, and again, you mentioned Nancy Pelosi, she came out of leadership, and now you got Hakeem Jeffries in there, who is at least younger. Um, so I think... You know, we're not run necessarily by gerontocracy, but I do think that there are uh, older people who sometimes are out of step with what it is that the younger members of the party are about. And as far as McConnell and his beef with Trump, I think it even heightened a little bit even more when he saw the under, when McConnell, that is, saw the underperformance because of the candidate quality in 2022. And I think that was part of his, his reasoning for not liking uh, what was going on. But, you know, we'll see with the, you know, as we move forward. And I guess we will be back with more Rising. Former President Donald Trump testified in New York yesterday as part of Attorney General Letitia James' $250 million civil lawsuit alleging fraud in his real estate business practices, NBC reports. A spokesperson for James' office said the former president spoke a lot, according to NBC. It was not, quote, immediately clear what questions Trump was asked. In a true social post, that was posted overnight in the hours before the deposition, Trump said, quote, just arrived in Manhattan for a deposition in front of New York State's racist, Trump-hating Attorney General Letitia Peekaboo James in another unjust and ridiculous persecution of the 45th president of the United States. In a statement from yesterday morning, Trump attorney uh, Alina Haba said Trump was, quote, not only willing but also eager to testify before the attorney general. NBC reports. Uh, she continued, quote, he remains resolute in his stance that he has nothing to conceal and looks forward to educating the attorney general about the immense success of his multi-billion dollar company. Uh, Trump also sat for a deposition in James's office in August, and his trial has been set for October. So, <laughs> I'm hearing Everybody's the favorite subject. Yeah, it was Trump. huge, huge. Um, now, I think this is, this is kind of interesting. Number one, I have to start by saying, one of the things that the right oftentimes criticizes me, whether it's on social media or whatever, they come after me, that whenever I mention anything that has to do with race, they're like, you know, oh, here you go with race again. You're throwing the race card out there. But here, I don't know that there's any evidence that Letitia James has any kind of racial bias. He calls her racist. And I'm waiting for, you know, I don't, I'm not on true social, but I'm wondering, did people say, hey, Mr. President, let's not, or Mr. Former President, let's not go the race route. Let's not talk about race. Do you think the right did that, Inez? 
I, something tells I mean, me they I, didn't. I, I doubt it, but I also wouldn't focus on that one word. I mean, I think Trump probably is just throwing back the word that has been used against him. That's a very, like, Trumpian sort of thing to do. Um, but I, I think this case is generally worrying, um, not for Trump and not because of his business arrangements and, and his um, real estate sort of companies. Um, he has civil liability here. Obviously, this is not a criminal case, which is uh, he. But previously, he had pleaded the fifth um, in this previous right. deposition. And this time he talked, quote, a lot um, about how his, his company was a magical success. Um, maybe it was. I have no idea. Um, but it, but in any case, uh, I think this sets a really, really damaging precedent, because both in Bragg and, and Letitia James' case, right, they ran on Fundamentally, we're going to get Donald Trump. Um, that is a huge breach, uh, I, I think, to, to point out. I'm going to get this specific person, and moreover, somebody who is um, somebody who is a former president, um, somebody uh, who obviously that there are questions about political prosecution, right? I, I think that this sets a really, really bad precedent. And in fact, I think there are some people in Letitia James' office who have were uncomfortable with the way that she ran. So these are not, you know, sort of Trump fans or whatever, but are uncomfortable with the way that she very aggressively ran on, we are going to get this guy, we're going to find a way to get him. That's not how the American you know, legal system is supposed to work. Yeah, I would agree that Donald Trump is definitely, um, you know, he's not in legal jeopardy from this. This is a civil case, although from, ta uh, you know, taking the fifth, people can infer guilt from that. It's very different than a criminal case where, of course, your Fifth Amendment rights, you, you know, you can't infer guilt from pleading the, the Fifth Amendment. Um, however, they can do that from a civil trial, and he can be held liable. But I don't think it's really his concern. I think the biggest concern should be for Alan Weisselberg. That's the guy who still ha is under investigation for fraud. The other thing is, if Donald Trump did a lot of talking, Alvin Bragg is paying attention to what's being said in this, uh, in this deposition, and he's going to be paying attention uh, to hear if Donald Trump lies about anything or, you know, and, and one of the things that you, when you hear from prosecutors, what a lot of them say is do you get these, uh, you know, CEOs and, and guys like that, they have a tough time believing that someone else might in the room might be smarter than them. So they oftentimes try to outsmart, uh, you know, the, the attorneys around them. And sometimes they get themselves in legal trouble. Hopefully Donald Trump, for his sake, is disciplined in what he said and listened to what his attorney's advice and didn't go off script and just start talking and thinking he can, you know, say, oh, this was perfect and, you know, do the, the normal Trump thing. Hopefully he can be disciplined. I think Alan Weisselberg is the person that could end up facing time. This is a civil case for Donald Trump. Of course, he's still in jeopardy because it, it's been clear that Alvin Bragg still has that fraud element open. Uh, and he's still investigating and he's paying attention. But Alan Weisselberg, if there's any kind of evidence of fraud, it could really hurt him, uh, you know, in, in the investigation that's open on him. Um, and that, that points to a, re a reason why Donald Trump might be talking in this deposition, right? Um, because the, the the charges from DA Bragg are already out in the open, uh, and they, he did not choose to run with anything related to um, his tax documents or his tax filings um, that might actually be involved in this case. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that might be potentially why Donald Trump is willing to talk now as opposed to pleading the fifth in his first deposition over this case. But I think no nothing that you've said has... I guess, 
given me any less disquiet about the fact that, oh, you know, the entire um, edifice of law enforcement in New York is watching Donald Trump's every move to see um, if, if he, you know, accidentally says his company is bigger than, <laughs> or, or he exaggerates or, or does anything um, on the record that he might perjure himself. I mean, this is not the way that our justice system works. You know, people talk about being above the law and how no one is above the law. This, this is not uh, an appropriate way for the justice system to function. And I think Americans are right to have increasing concerns, right, about the fact that there appear to be two standards of justice. And one is just get Trump, right? Whatever he did, let's just find, let's paw through, you know, everything we can to try to make sure that we charge this man with as much as possible. Now, look, look I mean— Maybe there's something there, and, 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 you know, I'm not saying that Donald Trump, and I don't think uh, even his appeal is based on the fact that he's a man with totally clean hands and all of this, right? Um, obviously, he, he was doing, in, in the case with, that Bragg is going for, he was paying money to, a, you know, hush money to a porn star. This is not a guy who has lived his life in a perfectly pristine sort of up-and-up sort of way. That being said, that wouldn't be that shouldn't be the standard for prosecution in America. I think that's really, really worrying to a lot of people. And I think it causes his voters to rally around him because he is at his best when he can say, they actually want to get to you. They're prosecuting me because they hate me and they hate you. Um, and, and quote unquote, the system is out to get me. And here he has a valid case. The system is out to get him. Well, Both of these people said in during their campaigns that they are out to get Trump. And here they are getting Trump. Well, here, here's the thing. I, I think when you are under oath and you say something that is untrue, that's exactly how the system works. That is perjury. And, you you, you know, paying attention to, to see if you perjure yourself, yeah, but why that's is he exactly in that how to the begin system— with, right? Why is no, he being on. pulled in to begin no, with? That, no, that's, that's exactly how, how the system works. And if he actually is doing what they're saying that he's doing, he would not be the first business person to be held accountable for, you know— uh, devaluing or overvaluing properties in order to gain a business, a business advantage. So I don't necessarily believe that we can sit here and say that he's being targeted in a way that other people, this is how you hold business people accountable. Other business people have been held accountable. Now, as far as the, the public perception, now, I, I agree with you about, you know, we're going to get Trump. You know, I, I would not have run a campaign that way, but I will say that his indictment, according to the polls, if you believe them, and it seems like both sides, whether it's left, right, or center, everybody picks the polls that they like you know, and that they agree with. But his indictment, more Americans are in favor of his indictment ever since Alvin Bragg announced uh, the indictment. So the majority of Americans actually support him being indicted, and most people think he actually did something. And with you stating that you think that his hands aren't clean, if my hands weren't clean or your hands weren't clean, the system would come get us. I think, if anything, as we saw, he didn't take a mugshot. He wasn't handcuffed. I know people who've been in the criminal justice system, all of them have had to go through those processes. So for him, it's actually his power that's saving him. He can't make the argument, in my opinion, a, a, a good faith argument, say, they're coming for me, so that means they're coming for you, little guy. They've been coming for the little guy. They're, they're just now starting to come for some billionaires. And I think, you know, that that's, I think, the the— the reason why a lot of Americans and the majority of Americans actually support this indictment. I think I think you're conflating two different issues, which is one that that the rich and powerful often have access to the kind of of uh, you know high high powered lawyers and and the fact that that um, you know that that it's harder. 
uh, as, as a defendant if you are not connected to those in power is something that's obvious and I think both of us would criticize, right? Um, but here, I think this is very clearly politically motivated. In fact, that one poll that you cited shows that, that actually the Americans who support this, even a, a large percentage of them who think that he should be prosecuted, also acknowledge that this is politically motivated. And I, I think that's really hard, hard to deny, that it is politically motivated when you have both the DA, right, um, and the attorney general both running campaigns saying, basically, we want to politically, we're going to find something to get this guy. So I, I, I think that that is really, really, really dangerous. And then you factor in the fact, like, Okay, here, here's what I would say. There is no way that Donald Trump is being deposed, in this case, by Letitia James, um, if he had never come down the escalator in 2015, if he had never run for president, if he didn't have outsider opinions that pissed off the entire Washington, D.C. establishment, right? If he yeah. didn't, if he, like, he would not be, if we were just pulling in some random billionaire who has, you know, shady real estate connections or whatever, I would say, yes, go for it. It, it is important that we prosecute people who have power, who have connections. That is a good thing. But in this case, it seems the opposite opposite, where actually there's no way that Donald Trump would have be sitting in these chair, th that chair today if he, wasn't, um, if he wasn't president, if he wasn't expressing views that, uh, you know, half the country and, uh, some, and more than half of the political establishment really doesn't like. That is a really, really dangerous precedent. And I do think that Americans find it as applied to them. You know, think about how uh, people, I think, for example, the fact that people did not come out to like protests in huge numbers when he did go in, I, I live about half a mile from from that courthouse, right? When he did go in um, um, to get processed for the, the the brag charges, people didn't protest in large numbers, not because Donald Trump fans are not very very ticked off about this. Believe me, they are. I hear from them. Um, but because they don't believe that they have the right to protest in this country, they believe that they will be arrested um, on, on, by a politically biased system. Whether that's true or not, I think there's good reason to think it is. Um, but whether that's true or not, a country can't survive long with this kind of double standard of justice when a large percentage of the American people do not believe that the justice system is blind to what your political views are. Yeah, so I'm going I'm to I'm going to disagree on, on several accounts. First of all, there have been many of us who have been saying there's a two-tier justice system for a long time, but it's never been against people who are wealthy and powerful. It's never been against uh, people in in the kind of position that Donald Trump is in. And the idea that you can't protest, Donald Trump is still able to pull out uh, people for his uh, rallies. He's able to pull out. He was able to pull out 200,000 people at the ellipse. He's able to pull people out. There's no question about it. I think his act is getting a little stale at times, but, you know, he's, he still is able to pull people out. I think the reason that you didn't see a lot of people in New York is because it's New York and because you live in Manhattan, and that's not a stronghold for Donald Trump. If Lots he were, of people in Staten if, Island. Come, I think there Yeah, Staten Island, yeah. There, he has some support in Staten Island, Long Island, but not in Manhattan, not in, not in you know, that close part of Brooklyn. You saw a lot of people come out on the other side. There are a lot of people who, again, uh, are willing to, you know, we saw during the campaign, they were willing to, to you know, run bu buses damn near off the road during uh, the, the 2020 campaign and, and all of that. They're willing to come out and they're passionate about Donald Trump. Uh, I think in this particular case, because of the location of this, they did not come out. That's not to say that they're, they're not passionate about Donald Trump, but this argument, again, from people who, you know, I, part of the work that I do oftentimes deals with people who are being railroaded by the justice system. And now, because a billionaire is being, uh, you know, being uh, 
prosecuted, all of a sudden there's a two-tier justice system? Tell that to Ronnie Long and the people who did 44 years in prison for a crime they didn't commit, all the, all the poor working-class people who, who go to prison. This idea, which he's not going to go to jail for any of this, none of this, not—of course, Letitia James is civil, but when we're talking about some of the uh, criminal cases, he's not going to go to jail for any of it. Why? Whereas other people have, other, and other powerful people, by the way, um, have had their mugshots taken and all that. We've seen John Edwards had a mugshot taken, but of course, Donald Trump did not. It's because he was president. It's because he has those, uh, you know, that kind of status that has kept him away from criminal justice. And had he not come down that, ele uh, that escalator, I'm not prepared to say that his business dealings, if they're shady or not, would not have come to light. You do put a spotlight on yourself when you are in the public eye, you know, and he is in the public eye. And that put a spotlight on, on him and his business I think dealings. our fundamental disagreement here is, is why he's being prosecuted now. And, and by the way, I do think that it's important to have a standard not to prosecute former presidents. Um, and and I've, I've made this argument in print a, a few times. But um, when we talk about nobody being above the law, right, I think that's true in the sense that if, if a former president, to use Donald Trump's own example, or, or I can't remember if it was his originally, but yeah, I think it was, um, if he shoots someone on Fifth Avenue, right, he right. should be prosecuted like every other American. Um, but the standard for prosecuting somebody who's so visibly a symbol um, and has been president for half the country politically, mm -hmm. there's a reason we haven't prosecuted our former presidents. And it's not because all of our former presidents have totally clean hands and there's absolutely nothing, no documents and their Corvettes, right? Um, it, it's not because of that that we haven't prosecuted our former presidents. It's because breaking that norm has such immense consequences. I don't think this can ever be undone. There's going to be Republican attorney generals looking through, you know, every um, Democratic figure, you know, pro former president and everything else now. And I just think that that standard, um, that standard is a sad yeah. thing for America. And I think it's really, really dangerous. Well, I'll say this, Israel, France, uh, Italy, Many, many countries have prosecuted their, their leaders, but uh, we'll be back with more Rising. That was a fun conversation. California Congressman Ro Khanna doubled down on his calls for Senator Feinstein to resign. In an exclusive interview with The Hill on Thursday, he said Feinstein should step, step down because she is, quote, simply unable now to fulfill her duties. He expressed sympathy for what she's going through, but added there should be someone available who can do the job. The Judiciary Committee, in which Feinstein holds a coveted seat, has been unable to move forward confirming 14 judicial nominations because of her absence. Earlier this year, Feinstein did confirm that she would be retiring after her term is up in two years, but her absenteeism has drummed up rumblings that she should consider stepping away sooner. Regardless, her departure trees up an even more heated race for her seat. And that is already in progress with fellow California Democrats, including representatives Adam Schiff, Katie Porter, and Barbara Lee, have already thrown their names into the hat. Okay, so right. um, <laughs> we've been wanting to get on this subject for a while. But, yes. but there, so 
we have here a senator of the most populous state in the union, right? Mm -hmm. One of two senators assigned uh, that got elected in California, to, and has to do like let's not forget that the job of a senator is not just the legislative, right? It's also constituent services, right? If you have if you're a business in California and you need something to be done or, or you to request some kind of constituent service, like. Presumably, those things are not happening either. Right. She's been basically absent, and like, so what do you think about all of this? I mean, should yeah. should she resign immediately? Is is, is Congressman Connor right, or you know, was she elected? And she, I know um, Obama came in and, and endorsed her and said, no, we're gonna we're gonna do one more term with with Feinstein. I mean, where do you stand on all this? So I, I, I'm leaning towards Ro Khanna, and I do think it's a little different than the McConnell situation because McConnell says he's coming back. Um, next week, whereas when we look at someone like uh, Dianne Feinstein, there's, there's really no timeline, direct timeline, on when she's going to come back. And she's holding up all these judicial nominees, uh, and she's holding up, you know, something that Democrats definitely want, particularly with the cases on Mifepristone and all these kinds of things. Like, Democrats really want judges in those seats. And uh, I think the nation needs judges in those seats. And so she's holding up the, the Judicial Committee. Now, I do think Ro Khanna has his own agenda for what he's doing here. And, I, and I'm, I'm a huge fan of Ro Khanna. I'm, like, big fan. But I think part of what Ro Khanna wants to do is he knows that the person who is appointed to that seat by the governor will have an inside track into uh, winning the seat later. He knows that Gavin Newsom has said he's going to appoint a black woman to that seat. There's one black woman in that entire race, someone who uh, Ro Khanna works very closely with, and Ro Khanna is backing in this race, and that's Barbara Lee. So uh, I think it's pretty clear that, you know, of the, the choices that uh, Gavin Newsom would have to put in that seat, Barbara Lee would make a lot of sense, so there's a good chance that he'll choose Barbara Lee, and then Barbara Lee will have to run against Katie Porter and Adam Schiff, who probably have a higher profile than her, even though, you know, uh, of all the people we just talked—you know, we've talked about the Iraq War. Uh, you know, Barbara Lee was one of the few people after 9-11 who said, wait, hold up, maybe we shouldn't invade Iraq. But everybody called her un-American and said all kinds of things about her. Um, and she stood firm on that, and that was a really important moment. It was just Barbara Lee. So she definitely has some, you know, uh, gravitas in terms of her judgment. And uh, I think that she would have an argument, but she is the—probably the—has the lowest profile when we're talking about Adam Schiff, who everybody has seen numerous times for the last four years because, you know, everything was Trump. And then, of course, Katie Porter. Uh, has branded herself with her whiteboard, which I love. Um, this would def definitely help Bar uh, Barbara Lee moving forward, and I think that's why Rokana wants to do it. Yeah, I mean, there's two separate questions here, right? Um, I, I want to ask why, because it seems to me that if um, she does resign, right, you actually you need consent, usually unanimous, um, from Republicans in order to appoint a new person in her place, both for the committee, right, for, for her slot in this committee. 
there's not really a lot of incentive for Republicans to give that. Now, other than, than the norm of sort of, um, of, of doing this by unanimous voice vote, there's not like a, a lot of incentive for Republicans to do that. If they can continue to hold up this committee and not have Joe Biden's nominees go through, I mean, this is kind of a good situation for them, which is created by the fact that, um, you know, Feinstein, she's, I believe she's 89, um, you know, but by the fact that she did pursue this, this term. So, I mean, I use the word in another segment, uh, gerontocracy. But I mean, I, I do think that th this is this is the result of having such a large percentage of our our leaders, and whether that's Schumer, who's slightly younger, right? But mm -hmm. um, Pelosi uh, and, and Feinstein here, but also on the Republican side, right? Like McConnell um, and and Trump himself is older. Biden mm -hmm. himself is older, right? We've been discussing. Barbara Lee this. is in her late sixties. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, that's young <laughs> by by congressional standards, right? right Actually, right. historically, that hasn't been the case. Um, it's not that very young people have ever dominated sort of the halls of power in America. But historically, I don't know that it's ever been the case that so many of our top leaders are either 80 or yeah. over 80 or pushing 80. Yeah. Um, and, and I do think there's there's a problem there because, you know, it's just the fact that people who are 89, you know, are going yeah. to have Vulnerable. health problems and, and they're going to not be able to perform duties that take an enormous amount of, of um, dedication and time. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that, that, you know, some of these people have to take it upon themselves. I'm, I don't want to be ageist and say that, you know, you can't work over 80, but I think some of these people need to, again, put country ab above uh, their own personal, you know, desires and say, look, I'm going to leave this position. I'm going to allow for somebody younger to come in, whether that person is 65 or 35, you know, who knows, but, you know, at 35, you've got, you've got 20 years of work ahead of you. Uh, or at least 15. Um, I think once you start getting around 80, when you're the Patrick Leahy or you're the Chuck Grassley, who is, you know, he does how, have how a old great is Twitter he? presence, though. Yeah, I mean, I mean, but <laughs> I think is he 88? I, I'm not yeah, sure. I think so. I think he's 88 yeah. right now. Like, come on, and he's gonna run again? Like, he's. And I think he's trying to break a record. I think that's literally part of his motivation is to say he's, you know the longest serving or the oldest senator in American history. But, you know, I think that, that this, we, we do need for some people to be responsible and say, look, I can spend this time doing other things. I can advocate from the outside. I can, you know, do other work, but I can't hold up the levers of government um, with my advanced frail age. Now, I, I think you, you have a good point about, you know, Republicans not having an incentive to, to actually fill that seat. That would be very McConnell-esque of them uh, to try to keep hold up some of these judicial uh, appointees. Um, but at the same time, well, what we've heard from Dianne Feinstein is that she's saying, some replace me, have someone replace me. Um, and I don't know how that works procedurally. Whether they can that's just what, that's what they need the vote for. So they need the vote. They're oh. going to need a unanimous vote in order to to replace her with another Democrat. It's not clear to me that Republicans should give those votes, right? At least not easily mm -hmm. or without asking something in, in return. Um, I think there's an interesting ge generational dynamic going on between the two parties right now. So. Um, you mentioned uh, in, in earlier. You mentioned like the the new generation of Democratic um, elected officials, right? The squad, right? These are all yeah, people. Yeah. I think AOC is 32. Um, they're primarily Maxwell millennials. Frost, I think is 24, 25. Uh, yeah. So millennials, and then even uh, increasingly, I think we'll see we'll see Gen Z coming up behind there. It's it's interesting to me that. Um, 
all of the new faces in the Republican Party, all the up and coming, you know, your, your, your Governor Ron DeSantis, Senator Tom Cotton, right, um, Josh Hawley, all these guys are Gen X. And I think there's an interesting generational shift here where in the Democratic Party, it's going straight from boomers almost, almost exclusively to millennials who are a much more left-leaning generation, whereas Gen X in polls is taking a very sharp conservative turn. Um, comparatively to their previous votes and also comparatively to, to boomers, right? Um, so I think it's going to be really interesting. I think actually their politics 10 years from now is going to look a lot like Gen X versus millennials, I think. Yeah, no, that, that's, a, that's an interesting point. I, I definitely can see where, uh, you know, Gen, Gen Z has a completely different worldview than a lot of, you know, Gen Xers and, and others, like people that preceded them. And I think that that's kind of the natural evolution, right? I mean, generally, when people get older, they start getting concerned about taxes. And they start to become more conservative. Um, so I think I'm not sure that this is radically different than what's happened in the past. I think younger people, like 20 years ago, the Josh Hawleys of the world, I, I can't say specifically about Josh Hawley, but that generation of people were, you know, anti-war. I'm not so sure that some of those older people are those same anti-war voices or, you know, the people that were anti-war and going out there and were far left in, you know, 2000 or 2002 or 2003 they're not still in that same place politically that they were then. So I think that sometimes with age, you, you evolve politically, and usually it evolves to being more conservative. So, I mean, two, two points to that. One, the, certainly culturally, the politics of the country have moved left, so you could theoretically stay in the same place, and then you would be placed in the, in the conservative spectrum where you weren't before, just by— See, in I other disagree. Words, the, the, the Overton window— are changing around you. But just the second point is, is that that's just not what we're seeing. We're seeing a hard break in polling. And it's, so there, there are long-term um, long polls that, that track sort of where someone is from— they do a Democratic-Republican, which is an imperfect spectrum, but let's let's go with that as, as the proxy for right and left for now. Um, what what we're, we're seeing is, like, you can track boomers over time, like what percentage of boomers were voting Republican versus Democrat when they were 30. And right. what we're seeing is millennials— so Gen X is getting more conservative than boomers were at the same age. Um, in other words, they're swinging more Republican than boomers did at that age and that similar part of their sort of political lifetime, right? Um, and then what we're seeing with millennials, and then to, to a lesser extent Gen Z, just because we don't have enough data on it, is this hard break where millennials are actually are continuing to get more and more liberal and more vote more and more Democrats. So, like, it's, it's, um, it's not the natural evolution is what I'm saying. And yeah. I, I think— Personally, I think that has a lot to do with uh, the university and, and K-12 system and the changes in curriculum that have happened over the past 30 Ooh, years. Well, that, that would so. lead us into a long, long conversation. <laughs> um, I, I would say that the Overton window has actually shifted to the right. So I guess it depends on who you ask. But one of the things that is without question is that we will be back with more Rising, with more to discuss. National Affairs Correspondent at The Nation, John Nichols, is here with us to discuss the recent bet Robert F. Kennedy Jr. has placed on New Hampshire to boost his presidential bid and what we can expect to see happen in the 2024 Democratic primary. Welcome. Um, I, want, I want to kick it off. Oh, 
<laughs> Thanks for coming on. Um, I want to kick it off with a quote from RFK Jr. talking about the reasons for his run. And I want to ask you what kind of purchase that still has in the Democratic Party. He says, quote, corrupt, uh, he's against the corrupt merger between state and corporate power. That sounds to me like sort of old old school um, Democrat message. I'm thinking back, um, you know, all the way back to like 2008, you have some of these anti-war, anti, like kind of Ralph Nader-esque, right? How much purchase does that view still have in the Democratic Party when a lot of the party establishment seems very comfortable with the merger between corporate power and, and agency power, government power? Well, that's a great question. And uh, I think you could even trace it back a lot further to uh, Franklin Roosevelt and uh, the, the New Deal era when Roosevelt talked a lot about those precise issues. So historically, the Democratic Party had an understanding that, um, that you know, the merger between corporate power and governing was a dangerous thing. And uh, I think that's still very alive within the party at the grassroots. Certainly, uh, I think that powered a lot of Bernie Sanders' challenge uh, uh, to the party establishment in 2016 and in 2020. Uh, and certainly, there are a number of people in Congress uh, who would would certainly uh, embrace that position. But uh, I think that at the establishment level, no, there's there's a great discomfort with those who uh, want to, you know, kind of fundamentally move the party toward a more progressive populist position. So you, you actually say that uh, he's focusing on New Hampshire. And my question is, a lot of the discussion in the Democratic Party has been that New Hampshire is no longer a bellwether because it's not as diverse a state as, say, South Carolina or some of the other states. And my question, do you think that it is really a good state for uh, RFK Jr. to really stake his claim in? I understand that, you know, he has the name recognition and all that, but it not being necessarily a bellwether. And we can look at even, you could argue that it was never a bellwether. I mean, Paul Songus won it in 1992 over Bill Clinton. Uh, Bernie Sanders has won it twice and unable to actually get the nomination. Is this really a place where he should start his uh, campaign? Well, remember, Kennedy is starting very much as an outsider. Right. Mm -hmm. He is starting as someone who has that name recognition that you're talking about um, and uh, has some history. Right. He's somebody who, you know, was has uh, been known as an environmentalist over the years. But his recent history, particularly his uh, skepticism as regards vaccines, made him a very controversial figure. And so he necessarily, if he's going to make this run, needs to start where he thinks he can have his strongest run. Uh, my sense is because the Kennedy name, you know, is historically rooted in New England, um, there is a, a calculation there that New Hampshire might be a spot where he could get some traction. Now, if you ask that deeper question, and that is, is New Hampshire the right place to begin a presidential race, uh, particularly in the Democratic Party? No, there's a lot of reasons why uh, there are places that would be better. Um, and, you know, South Carolina's got the, the concession currently, but uh, there are people who've made a very strong case for a state like Michigan, um, and, which is, has a lot of diversity and also um, which is a historic battleground state. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I think that, it, that in this case, what you're looking at with uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and also with Marianne Williamson, another person who's announced a candidacy, is a sense that because New Hampshire has been taken off the core Democratic list, you know, it's 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 sort of now a, a, 
a state that is forcing its way into the process uh, and into the early part of the process, that it might be a place for them to get a stronger showing that they might than they might get otherwhere, otherwhere, otherwise, and then from there to build on that. I think that's the theory. Mm. Yeah, let's, let's talk about that Kennedy name, right? Um, remember, way back in 20, 2010, you have Scott Brown over in Massachusetts saying it's it's not the Kennedy seat, it's the, the people's seat with regard to the Senate seat held by Ted Kennedy. Um, you know, how, how long, I mean, this is obviously a, a famous Democratic Party name. Um, do you think that it actually is, is a significant um, aid to him, uh, to Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s run? Or do you think that within the Democratic Party even, and even in, in New Hampshire or in the, uh, the Northeast, that that Kennedy name is, is of a dynasty that's, that's uh, sort of long disappeared? I think that is a superb question, uh, because that goes right to the heart of the matter. Um, you know, it there is no question that the Kennedy name has resonance within the Democratic Party and more broadly. Look, we're talking about him right now. Uh, and so there's something about it that does get attention and gets noticed. But if you'll recall, in uh, just a few years ago, uh, Kennedy ran for the U.S. Senate seat in a primary against Ed Markey and the senator from Massachusetts and lost that primary pretty badly. And there's a lot of evidence that the Kennedys are uh, no longer as politically potent as they were, say, in the 1960s, even in the 1970s. And even there, I'll remind you that Ted Kennedy challenged uh, Jimmy Carter in 1980 and lost. So um, there's a, a lot of reason to believe that the Kennedy name doesn't have quite the traction that it, that it once had. And also, again, because Robert F. Kennedy has been such a controversial figure, and because many of the positions he's taken, uh, particularly as regards vaccines, have put him outside of, uh, I think, the, the circle of a lot of mainstream Democrats, uh, that becomes an even greater challenge. So you, you um, kind of alluded to, and Inez as well, is that uh, RFK Jr. is kind of like an old school Democrat populist, uh, and that's the kind of campaign that he may run. My question is, um, is the environment for that crowd, because I'm thinking about people like uh, you know, like a Tulsi Gabbard who ran uh, in, in uh, 2020. My question is, is that really a winning issue for that populist audience that he could probably attract in a state like uh, New Hampshire? Uh, is the environment just something that is more, you know, something that the youth of the party are more interested in, that some of these older, you know, whiter members uh, of the party in New Hampshire may not be quite as engaged in? It's a very good question. Look, here's what I would suggest to you, um, uh, that it, it appears that, that young voters, by and large, if you look at the polling data, are more inclined toward a progressive populist uh, position, right? They voted, they gave a, a lot of the, the heft to Bernie Sanders' campaigns. Mm -hmm. uh, they've, they've been very involved in the campaigns of many of the folks who are in the squad. So I think there's a lot of argument that, um, that there's a base for a progressive populist message. The challenge on it at this point is multifold. First and foremost, um, the Democrats have a president who's in office right now. And while he is, I don't think, identified with the left of the party, he clearly has been, in, on many issues, respectful of, of some of the stances that the left has taken. And I, I'm not sure that there is such a big inclination to look for an alternative. Um, polling does suggest, however, that there's a, a substantial number of, of Democrats who'd be interested in having another candidate than Joe Biden, someone else as their nominee. 
That's in New Hampshire. That's across the country. And the question really is whether Robert F. Kennedy Jr. would be that candidate. Um, and I think that uh, there's a number of reasons why it might be very difficult for him to claim that position. It might be much easier uh, for a sitting member of Congress, for a sitting senator, if one of those folks wanted to make the challenge. The reality, though, is there's very little evidence that uh, any prominent Democratic elected official is going to make a run in uh, 2024 against Joe Biden. How do you think RFK Jr.'s anti-war stance plays into his ability to, to gain those exact voters that we've been talking about, the progressive populist voters, who might be frustrated with the Biden administration on foreign policy matters? Oh, I think that, that an anti-war stance has historically had a lot of traction in Democratic primaries and caucuses. Um, if you look back, you know, go back to 2008, there was a lot of reasons why uh, Barack Obama took off you know, in 2007. One of the reasons was that he had been a critic of uh, the rush to war in Iraq back way back in 2002. And you go back to the um, Eugene McCarthy campaigns, the George McGovern campaigns, there's, there's always a constituency for an anti-war stance. And interestingly, I'm not sure it's, it's entirely on the left. I think there are people uh, in the center and the right. Uh, issues of war and peace are, are more complex. But again, the question becomes, is Robert F. Kennedy Jr., uh, the most effective candidate to carry that position into uh, the 2024 primaries? Or is someone like a Marianne Williamson who did run in 2020? Or is there someone else who might step up? One important thing to remember is, particularly in the New Hampshire uh, primary, you can file for that primary very late. I mean, so we're talking now in the spring of 2023 about who might be on that ballot. Uh, when you get to 2024, you could see any number of folks uh, decide to make a run. And again, we're talking about Robert F. Kennedy Jr. today because he's got the name Kennedy, right? That is his that is his biggest claim. And also because he does have a history. People know of him uh, historically as being an environmental activist, more recently as a, a vaccine skeptic, but also a critic of the pharmaceutical companies. And it's just a question of whether he will be um, the vehicle for a protest vote. Mm -hmm. And and that's an, one interesting dynamic there in New Hampshire and in many other states, uh, a candidate who is positioning himself as somebody you might vote for, not because you necessarily even want that person to be president, but it might be a way to send a message that that has some potency politically. Yeah. So thank you so much, John. I'll see you at the family reunion. Uh, thank yes. you for, for joining us. Uh, we'll be back with more Rising. New ProPublica reporting reveals that Texas billionaire and Republican megadonor Harlan Crow purchased property from Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas and that Thomas did not disclose the transaction. In this deal, Crow reaped two vacant lots and the house where Thomas's mother was living. And ProPublica says it is the, quote, first known instance of money flowing from Crow to the Supreme Court justice. The Crow Company purchased the properties for $133,363 from three owners, Thomas, his mother, and the family of his late brother, according to a state tax document, indeed with the date of October 14, 2015. 
In a statement, Crow said he bought Thomas's mother's house with the intention to, one, quote, one day create a public museum at the Thomas home dedicated to telling the story of our nation's second black Supreme Court justice. He said the other two lots were purchased, uh, were later, quote, later sold to a vetted builder who is committed to improving the quality of the neighborhood and preserving its historical integrity. Crow added, improvements were also made to the Thomas property to preserve its long-term viability and accessibility to the public. So... Um, I suspect we're going to disagree about this one, too, but I, let's get into I think it. We are, I think we are. You know, initially, uh, when it first came out that he had this relationship with Crow and he was going on his yacht and on his planes and all of that, I was with uh, many people on the right. I was like, this is, this. he can have friends. He can do things. He can vacation. This is not something where we can call for him to resign. I know Sheldon Whitehouse and uh, AOC and others were saying, this needs to be investigated, this, that he needs to certainly resign. And, I, you know, now that we know that there was actually the flow of money and that he did not disclose it, now it's starting to look pretty bad where I think there needs to be some sort of investigation. And, of course, everyone is comparing this uh, to Abe Fortas, you know, the, the story of Abe Fortas, where he got, uh, I think it was $20,000 from a Wall Street guy named Wolfson. Uh, I think it's uh, uh, Lewis Wolfson. He got um, a $20,000 payment. He returned the payment. But the pressure came in and said, this is improper activity. You did not disclose this. And he actually resigned. He was pressured into resigning. So we already have precedent that says that this is something that the Supreme Court does not tolerate, and he should get some pressure. Maybe at least there should be some more investigation into what occurred. Uh, we don't know. You know, we're trusting ProPublica's reporting uh, and that there's nothing more to this story. But on its face, it looks pretty bad to me. So I, I like like anticipated. I, I totally disagree, <laughs> and, and the main the main reason why is because there's no pro there's no pro in this quid pro quo, right? Mm -hmm. the, if, if the appearances of corruption, right, there are no matters for Harlan Crow pending between the Supreme before the Supreme Court, right? There's no no question of recusal, no question of like what this guy got out of it, except apparently a historical interest, which he's also being dinged for, you know, buying um, you know memorabilia from the World War II, both and both from communists and from um, Nazis, right? And like it, I I think on the face of this, this is plausible that he wants to preserve this home. Um, I think that actually makes a lot of sense given everything else that's come out about Harlan Crow and, and, and what he chooses to do with his money, which I actually, frankly, think is pretty cool. He's got, like, a, all these old statues, for example, apparently. This is all reported as, like, this guy is, is really dangerous. I thought it was, maybe as a history buff, I thought it was really cool. But he's bought, for example, a lot of this, the old statues from former communist regimes. So he, like, that when they come down, he's bought them and preserved them and put them in his backyard. I think this is very much on, you know, it makes sense with his character and his interests. Um, but, yeah, there's fundamentally, there's no... Um, suggestion that there's actually any anything um, going the other way here. So I do think this boils down to, you know, Justice Thomas has a rich friend. And I, I think it's not so much that I'd mistrust the reporting from ProPublica. It's that 
the actual substance of what they're reporting seems like a big nothing burger to me. Um, and then there's all these words jammed down in so, around about how it's how it's sort of scary that this happens. And I just I, I don't see this as fundamentally, um, you know, anything to worry about. And then uh, just one more thing about the, the investigations, the point that you, you mentioned, right? The fact that he didn't disclose this was not required by the rules of the Supreme Court at the time. So the justice has now said, OK, well, now they've changed the rules this month, right? They've Last month, they've changed the rules. Now anything I will report anything of this nature because you've changed the rules about what I need to disclose and what I don't. And he's been meticulous in his disclosures over the years. I mean, he's reported paperweights, right, that people have given him. And, and this was in a different category of things uh, that was not required to be reported. So I, I don't know. I, this, this seems to me to be an attempt to spin up a story where there really isn't one. So here's the thing. Um, I would agree with you if there wasn't precedent. Again, Lewis Wolfson did not have immediate business before the court when he gave uh, Justice Fort Fortis, that $20,000, which, again, was returned because it was supposed to be a $20,000 retainer, you know, it, and then he realized that he screwed up and he gave the money back, but yet he, he still was basically pushed off of the court. So, again, there's precedent, and you, what you stated earlier is correct about the gifts and the, uh, the trips and, and that kind of stuff, that was not part of the, the rules and he didn't have to disclose that. But when there's a, a money transaction, that's not something new. That's not a new thing on the court. That's something that's existed for a while. And we've seen where someone has been forced off of the court for doing something similar to that. So what I would argue is that there's precedent. Now, again, a week ago, I was with you, <laughs> you know what I mean? We were on the same side, we were on the same team, simpatico. But right now, things have changed when there's an exchange of money going on and he didn't disclose it. It's not about the quid pro quo, it's about the disclosure. That's what people are upset about, um, that he did not disclose, he's not disclosing his financial transactions, which is required of him in the Supreme Court. And again, I think the rules over the Supreme Court need to be uh, more clearly stated, they need to be ironed out a whole lot more than they have been. I, I think that, you know, we should have term limits and all that. But, you know, I definitely think there needs to be, uh, you know, more stringent rules on Supreme Court justices. You don't get a lifetime position and get to do what you want. Yeah, I mean, I think this is not a case of a guy writing him a check, right? He he bought this this lots, right? By the way, not not worth a whole lot of money. One hundred and thirty-three thousand doesn't sound like vastly overpaying, right? It doesn't sound like somebody. And I, I don't know what the the valuation on on the property is, but that doesn't sound like one of those you know artificially inflated numbers where it's like you're not really purchasing the house, you're actually purchasing influence by overpaying by a million dollars or something like that. That doesn't seem on its face what's happening here. It's not a direct check that he wrote to Thomas. It's he's purchasing the property for historical preservation purposes. Again, that actually sounds like a plausible reason to me. Yeah. And Thomas wasn't required to disclose this by the previous rules. He didn't. Now that the rules have changed, he will. Anything in the future, um, and he, he's, he's made that as a statement. Um, I, I just don't see... I don't see the where the the sort of idea of corruption here is coming. Like, wh where is the actual corruption coming from? Where is the, like, 
end product of this quote unquote influence that is being intimated uh, that Harlan Crow is buying here. And I just I don't see what the end product of it is. Um, Judge Hardiman uh, from the Third Circuit, Judge Ho from the Fifth Circuit, actually uh, talked about this uh, with Aaron Sibarium, um, I think yesterday or the day before. Um, and they also pointed to, you know, there's no matters before the court. They said actually, like, um, this is this is sort of this would radically change if this was like forbidden. This would radically change um, the the behavior of the judiciary across the board. They said both both of them like yeah we go out to like golfing with our friends or whatever. So they they saw Thomas's behavior as very much uh, in line with with what is appropriate for a judge. Um, and and again didn't see the, the big story here. So yeah. then you have two other other federal justices judges coming out and saying they're. This this isn't this isn't this is an attempt to create a stink of corruption where there really isn't any evidence that there is any. Yeah, I would say uh, golfing with your friends is a little different than uh, a, a financial transaction where you are actually receiving money. And I guess one hundred thirty thousand dollars isn't a lot to you. You make the big bucks, but uh, you know, for <laughs> I, all... I don't have one hundred thirty thousand dollars. I'll tell you that. No, but, <laughs> but for, for, for a property, right? For three right. properties, that doesn't seem. You know what I'm for saying? A lot. That, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes you could see uh, somebody purchasing, like, wink, yeah. wink, nod, nod, I'm purchasing the property, but actually I'm writing you a check for twice the value or something. That doesn't seem on the face of it what's going on here. Right. Well, I, th I think, yeah. you know, again, I, I don't want to start to guess because, uh, you know, of course we can look at scenarios where this, uh, you know, of course he, he wants this property sold and who does he go? He calls his billionaire friend. There, there can be things where this doesn't uh, pass the smell test, but either way, um, I think that what we've seen, again, Abe Fortas uh, was supposedly gave legal advice and was paid for it, but gave the money back and was still kicked off the Supreme Court. I think, to me, you have to, uh, you have to let, you have to uh, record what it is uh, that you do, particularly financially, uh, to make sure that you don't end up in those kinds of situations, and, and he failed to do that. But I think what you said uh, also makes a lot of sense. There's no evidence of a quid pro quo. We'll be back with more rising. President Biden shared these recent barbs from his trip to Ireland this week. My heart, there's nothing our nations can't achieve if we do it together. I really mean it. So thank you all. God bless you all. Let's go. Let's go lick, lick the world. Let's get it done. And the president made a gaffe uh, during another speech regarding the 1919 through 1921 Irish Independence War. Right here was a hell of a rugby player. And they beat the hell of the black and tans. Oh, God. But, but it was when you were at a, a soldier field, wasn't it? Game? Chicago. Chicago. And uh, after it was all over, uh, uh, he uh, gave my brother allegedly for me, but if it wasn't, I still took it. I still got the tie. I wear it with great pride. I would say let's discuss the remarks, but I have, I only understood about half the words that he said. Yeah, I, so. I, there was something about he got a gift from a rugby player who played in Soldier Field in Chicago. Um, yeah, he, he looked a little exhausted that day. I mean, the the one about let's go lick the world, that's just hilarious. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> that's just I would have thought it would be go sniff the world for Joe Biden, but. Oh. <laughs> 
Anyway, yeah. yeah, I mean, look, Joe Biden has always been a bit gaffe prone, even when he was younger, right? Um, he, yeah. he has he has a history of those those gaffes, but they do seem um, to to build up at an alarming rate. None of this is particularly important, right? That this right. this, this um, trip to Ireland generally has been relatively uneventful. That's why we're talking about these gaffes that are kind of funny, um, but you know. There, there has been a marked decline of Biden's ability to speak off the cuff. I mean, I think we're not being honest if we don't talk. I mean, I remember covering Biden um, in, in the primaries in 2019 for this program, for Rising, and mm-hmm. uh, that man on the debate stage was not the person that we'd see giving, like, press conferences, talks, you know, that like like this speech. There's, there's a clear and marked decline well, here. Well, I think there were moments where, I mean, he's not somebody that can hit the campaign trail uh, the way some of the younger people can, you know, um, where they're literally out there, you know, 18 hours a day and getting, you know, four or five hours of sleep and right back on the trail. He, he's not that guy anymore. And luckily for him, as an indep- uh, as an incumbent, he's not going to have to keep up that same kind of schedule in terms of campaigning. The goal also was to have someone younger as your running mate who would do some of that, take some of that burden off. And I don't think that necessarily uh, Vice President Harris uh, has the popularity or, or the profile to go out and, you know, do a lot of what uh, you, they actually wanted from her. Um, in garnering people's excitement and garnering younger people to get excited about another Biden presidency. Um, so it's, it's going to be, you know, interesting to see how he does on the campaign trail. But I don't think he's going to have to keep up the same schedule that he would if, you know, when he was running in or that he did when he was running in 2019-2020. Uh, Uh, Let me ask you this. Do you think this is going to be a factor in whether or not Biden ends up the nominee? Because we've both seen the polls where um, there's a large part of the Democratic base who's dissatisfied with Biden. Mm -hmm. Um, His age does factor into that, right? it, especially, as you say, with, with Vice President Harris not being able to really pick up the slack there. I mean, again, to point to 2019, right, uh, Democratic primary voters saw very quickly that she doesn't have the, the sort of charisma or ability to, to hold an audience. They, they knocked her out of the primaries pretty early, considering yeah. um, that she came in with, like, you know, a really good sort of resume for the Democratic Party, and then she really disappointed in those, those debates. So, again, I think, like— you know, well, what I, happens with these two? Is that, are these two really, uh, you know, are they going to be the Democratic well, standard bearers in I'll 2024? T- I'll say this. I, I definitely, you know, Joe Biden was not my candidate. And Kamala Harris, even when Joe Biden had clearly gotten the nomination, she was not the person who I thought should have been uh, his running mate. I think that there were better choices out there. Um, you know, for everybody and for the entire political landscape, I think that there were better people he could have chosen. Um, but I, and I will say just cause I know someone is going to, you know, correct me about 2019 and 2020 and say he ran from his basement, you know, but there were a lot of times where he was out on the campaign trail, you know, before, you know, it got real COVID-y and when he was out on, on the campaign trail, you could see the, the kind of the age start to creep up, but then he went into those debates and he did well. Like, everybody thought he was, you know, going to, like, fall asleep in the middle. You know, people were literally talking about, I don't know, that that debate's two hours. It's going to go till 11 o'clock. Is he going to fall asleep? <laughs> is he going to need his pudding cup? Yeah, before is he going to have to go to the bathroom? You know, all, all those <laughs> kinds of things. And he did well when he was up against 
Bernie Sanders, which I was not expecting. You know, I'm, I'm a Bernie stan in that regard. I, I thought Bernie was going to wipe the floor with him. He put up a good fight against Bernie. I think Bernie won, but he still put up a good fight against him. And then when you look at what he did with Trump, he did a decent job in, in the Trump debates. You know, people were like, Trump's going to steamroll him. And, and that didn't happen. You just saw two angry old guys. It was like, what's that movie with the two angry old, oh, the, the two, grumpy like, old men yeah. or whatever? <laughs> know, it was like grumpy old men all about, over yeah. again. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, they, um, you know, it was, it was kind of like that back and forth. Um, and I think, you know, Joe Biden, he's going to need the use of a lot of sur surrogates. He'll be able to make the excuse, like, I'm doing the work of the American people. I'm not just campaigning. And that will be his excuse not to campaign. And then he needs to come out for some really well-scripted uh, appearances in front of big audiences. I think that's the, the route that you take with someone who's Joe Biden's age and his level of frailty. Like, he can't you know, go to town halls all over the country and drink a beer with people and, all, and do all of that. I think he's got to do almost the Trump route, except it can't do the off-the-cuff thing. It just needs to be a lot more scripted, it, you know, iron out every word, make sure he doesn't say repeat the line when he's looking right at, you know, at the yeah. teleprompter. You know, and I, mean, I think he'll he'll be fine. You know, in in 2024. I mean, you you might be right, but the fact that we're discussing whether or not like which elements of the campaign trail he is and isn't up to, I mean, that obviously casts a serious like serious doubt onto whether or not he's up to the job of the presidency, which after all is at least as difficult, if not more so, than the campaign. And I, I think that the to the extent that these kinds of gaps are are news to you know that that's important to pay attention to, I think it's that. It, the question is, you know, who's really running the government? And I'm actually not asking that in a sort of conspiratorial way whatsoever in terms of the, the um, whatever, the court palace intrigue or whatever, so who's up and down in the White House. I'm saying more fundamentally, it seems like a lot of our country runs on autopilot through unelected agencies, and that the president already, even when they do have a lot more vigor and they have a very, like, aggressive agenda that they want to pursue, has difficulty controlling his own executive branch and getting those, those policies passed if it disagrees with the priorities of sort of unelected bureaucrats, right? Mm -hmm. and, and to the extent that Biden's infirmity and, and, and his limitations and in terms of, of being able to uh, aggressively do the job, whether that's on the campaign trail or in the Oval Office, to the extent that that additionally, you know, sort of uh, bolsters the power of unelected bureaucrats and leaves a lot more decision making to them, that I think is really worrying. Yeah, no, I, I, I hear that. And I think that that is a, a concern for the American people is, is you know, about uh, our bureaucracy. Um, one thing we can say about Joe Biden, is that he's gotten a lot done. Whether you agree with what he's done, that, that's something different. But he's gotten a lot of legislation through. Um, he's been pretty savvy about it, doing it through budget reconciliation. Um, and I think that's Joe Biden. And I think part of that is the experience argument, the, the thing that he knows how to work these levers of government. He's been here in the swamp for a long time, and he's able to, to get things done. And that's how you get some of this legislation. Some of it is even bipartisan in one of the most hyperpartisan moments that we've ever had. Um, so it should be, you know, really interesting to see how things move forward uh, and what's going to happen 
in the future. I just want to say next week on Rising, Brianna and Robbie will be back. If we will let them out of the basement uh, that we have them tied up in, you know, Joe Biden's basement. We'll be back to bring you all of the updates you were looking for. Inez, this was amazing. It's been Go back. Great. Go back to the rat haven you yeah. came from. Hey, I'm just hey, kidding. DC is the cockroach haven. I don't think that you guys have any room hey, to. We're Ebony and Ivory here. Rats yeah. and roaches, they go together. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content, whether it's from us or Brianna and Robbie, um, and those of you um, who like to listen while on the go. There is a podcast available. We are now available anywhere that you listen to podcasts. It's been, it's been a great Friday, guys. We'll see you next week.